things had gotten to a point where every time my phone rang, I knew it was him and I knew it was going to be money related and I would just get like a tight, just my stomach would go into knots. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show, but I could not be doing this thing by myself, so let's say what's up to my co-host, Justin. What's up, man? Well, I just had a pretty random impromptu weekend where I decided to drive to New Hampshire at 3 o'clock in the morning so I could uh, hit an REI grand opening and some of the other parties they were throwing for open the REI. But it also meant, you know, I got out of Boston a little early and got to do some hiking and camping, get outside because winter's coming. But how about you, Cody? Yeah, man. So this past weekend, I actually went to a Red Sox game, just hung out with a bunch of friends, went to a cool cookout. Just overall, pretty good weekend trying to soak up these last few days of summer. But before we dive into today's episode, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor. Skillshare is this really cool online learning community where they've got thousands of classes covering all these different creative skills or entrepreneurial skills. You can take classes in everything from photography to creative writing. I know I'm really excited about looking at the Instagram for business because we're always trying to make the Fascio assets look a little better online to attract more people. So you can join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare. You will get two months of unlimited access to all of their courses. All you have to do is go to Skillshare.com slash Show. That's Skillshare.com slash Show. All right. Now back to the start of the show. Let's talk about our main man, Ben, who realized his family was doing not so well when he was having to pitch in for the mortgage when he was just a kid. Really cool story that centers around the financial crisis, how it impacted his family, but I don't want to take away his whole story. Take it away, Ben. Was always very interested in like money and personal finance and everything growing up. I loved Monopoly and like killing everybody in Monopoly when I was a little kid. <laughs> but like, yeah, I grew up, you know, middle, upper middle class family. Both my parents were realtors and we lived a super comfy life up until about like 2008, uh, which was definitely not a great time to be a dual realtor 100% commission income family with no savings. <laughs> so that, that I think if there was probably a moment where I was like, oh my God, like not only is this interesting, but this is like of grave importance, right? To be able to understand personal finance and money and, and how it can kind of prevent some pretty bad things from happening. Or if you use it improperly, how, you know, you can put yourself in a really sticky position, which is Kind of what happened with yeah my family there in 2008 2009 real estate market went the tank and uh, yeah without any back savings things kind of took a pretty quick slide there after that. So I'd like to dig into that part that you're kind of highlighting there, which is the no savings piece. Looking back on it, could you kind of tell that your parents was it were there some obvious signs that they were living beyond their own means and not putting money back for a rainy day? Yeah, probably when I would have to chip in to make the mortgage payment on my minimum wage summer jobs, it was probably a pretty good signal that the math wasn't quite adding up. Kind of started to see that kind of stuff in high school before I hit university. So that would have been like 2005-ish, and that's still when, you know, market was doing good. And during the boom times in, in real estate, you know, they're still needing help with me to cover some expenses. You could tell that A, yeah, there's gotta be a no savings. And B, yeah, as quick as money was coming in, it was it was going out, right? So and I think a lot of people at that time, especially, it's almost like a bit of a of a house of cards, right? To try to maintain a certain lifestyle and try to appear 
you know, keeping up with the Joneses, whatever you want to call it. But I think a lot of people got kind of caught up in that type of mentality back then that, you know, money will keep coming in no matter what, no matter what. So doesn't really worry about if we don't save as much right now because more money will come in and until it doesn't. So, you know, that that plan works fine until it doesn't. But yeah, you could tell pretty early on, yeah, the savings was not a, a huge priority. So I kind of want to talk a little bit about before 2008, because Justin and I like painting a bigger picture. Like, could you talk about your upbringing a little bit? It sounds like your parents both went the semi-entrepreneurial route. I'd say most realtors definitely have some entrepreneur in them. Were they talking about business, money, careers, anything like that to you growing up? Yeah, I mean, they would take me to open houses and all that. So I grew up going to open houses and being around all that entrepreneurial type of stuff. But when it came to like money and personal finance, that was definitely an area where it was like almost a taboo subject. I remember one time, the only time, like one of the few times my mom ever really scolded me, me and my friends were debating which one of our, our houses was probably worth the most. And my mom pulled me aside and just lit into me because it was, uh, you know, her mentality was that it was rude to talk about money, right? And, and it's not something you should ever talk about. So, I mean, today I couldn't think more of the opposite. Um, it's super important that everybody talk about money, whether, you know, you're doing well or you're doing great. I mean, it doesn't have to be in a way where you're lording it over people or it's bragging. But I think it's super important for people to talk about money. And I think that was actually the worst lesson I learned growing up was kind of being taught early that, yeah, it's it's rude to talk about it. And it took a while to kind of unwind that mentality. So it sounded like your parents kind of hit some of these rough times about the same time you're getting ready to go to college. So how did that impact like the way you were looking to go about your life? Did it change what major you were going into? Did it change the way you viewed life was going to be or kind of the plan you set out, or were you just too young for it to sink in? No, it, it definitely sunk in. 2008 was my uh, second year in university, so I was in 19 at the time, and I switched my major. I think I was majoring just in business, and I switched to finance and economics. I literally wanted to learn everything I could about money and how money works, so I switched over to economics. And, you know, and that was also the time, too, where I really started to take my studies a lot more seriously. In high school, I played football, I played basketball, I didn't really care much about school or grades or all that. I actually chose the uh, school that I ended up going to for undergrad for football. And then when that didn't work out and all this stuff kind of started hitting the fan, that's when I really started to get serious about my studies. And I was pretty lucky to find a professor at my university who was a real mentor and then who actually later on, after a couple of years after I graduated, helped me get funding to go do my master's in economics as well, which was a huge turning point for me. So at the point you're getting into your master's degree, or maybe just the point we left off right there, what type of student loan debt were you in? Yeah, so I, by the time I finished my undergrad, I was about $30,000 in student loan debt. This was the really crazy part about this whole thing. So when I started university, my parents actually had quite a high income even though they had no savings. So I didn't actually qualify for student loan, government student loans. So I ended up having to get private student line of credits, which got racked up extremely quickly uh, once stuff started going sideways. So, and really the big thing for the line of credit versus a student loan for government student loans in Canada, you don't have to start paying the government student loans until after you graduate. And usually they give you a grace period. With the private student line of credits, as soon as I started racking up that debt, I had to start making payments, which meant even during undergrad, I was making these student loan payments. And as you can imagine, that that got me into some pretty hot water when I was 19 and trying to go to class and hold down a $35,000 student line of credit. 
ended up missing a few payments on that line of credit, which then really put my credit in, into my credit score into the tank, raised the interest rates on those lines of credit. So that was the kind of kick you while you're down was the fact that I couldn't qualify for those student loans for the government student loans and had to go with this personal line of credit. So I know earlier you mentioned because of the financial crisis and all this stuff happening, it, it led you to change your major. What did you envision your actual job? Like what did you what you wanted to do for a career would be? And then the second question is, you know, what drove you to get a master's? What motivated you to do that? Awesome question. So I came out, so I did finish my uh, four years doing economics and finance, and I thought I was going to come out and, you know, be basically a Wall Street, or in Canada, we call it Bay Street is our, our Wall Street. <laughs> <laughs> That's in, in Toronto, where all the big banks are is on Bay Street. I thought I was going to go out and be rock star finance guy, but I graduated as 2010, so it was a really, really terrible uh, labor market. It was not a great time to be graduating with a ton of debt and trying to work your way into finance. I actually ended up working at a 100% sales commission financial job. So I was working as a financial advisor. And really, this was probably 2010 after I graduated, it was probably the worst year of my life. I was working that job and I really hated it. I was ended up having to sell two products, which I tell people never to touch now, which is high cost mutual funds, actively managed high cost mutual funds and permanent life insurance. So... <laughs> <laughs> you are the guy everybody hates. <laughs> I, I'm the guy everybody hates. I hated myself at the time. It's the only, literally the only job I could find, right? And that was probably a red flag to begin with, right? Is that I, I, I was sending out hundreds of resumes, and this was the only place that called me back. That's is probably uh, a reason for that. So I spent two years doing that. And I actually made some decent money. It was a very soul sucking job, but kind of got me by. And then I was just very unhappy doing that. I knew I did not want to do that. I hated that job. 22 and talking to 40 and 50 year old people, you know, grilling them and guilting them into getting insurance that they may or may not have really needed. So I, I was looking for a way to get out of that. And I was having uh, drinks with I, my professor from my undergrad that was a really good mentor to me. And he just said, you know, he could tell that I was quite miserable doing what I was doing. So he suggested, why don't you just go do your master's? The labor market is terrible right now. It actually makes a lot of sense to remove yourself from the labor market for a year while it is so poor and go upgrade your skills and come back and hopefully it'll be a little bit stronger by the time you've graduated and you have more skills and more marketable skills. So he helped me get funding to do my master's in uh, economics and finance. And uh, that led to probably so 2010, 11 was the two kind of worst years of my life. 2013 was when I went to do my master's, which was probably the hardest but most productive year of my life. So leading up to that, my big concern with doing, you know, moving from bachelor level economics to master's level economics, it has this, a really big jump in terms of the uh, math required to, to do that. And that was a huge concern for me. I didn't really have the confidence that I, that I could do that. So basically, I spent... Every day I would get up at 6 a.m. I would go for five to 10 mile run. I would come back, spend three or four hours self-teaching myself calculus and derivatives and everything I needed to learn to do this program. Do that for about three or four hours and then go work all day, come back, go to sleep. I did that for about six months until I reached my master's degree. There's a math pre-qualifying test that I was terrified to take, but ended up nailing it, no problem. And then spent a year doing that degree, and it was a condensed degree. So typically, a master's degree takes two years. 
This was one year, so that meant you're doing your thesis and coursework at the same time. And during that time, I, I was a TA marking papers for my professors, worked part-time as a waiter and part-time as a, a data analyst for a drone company. Wow. So <laughs> I, was, uh, I was spinning about eight different plates. And even during that time, too, times were still pretty tough back home. And I was, during all that, still having to uh, send a little bit of money back home to help with the family paying the rent and whatnot. Because by that point, we had lost the home that we grew up in and uh, was foreclosed upon. And my parents were renting, and even that was a struggle. So, yeah, 2013 was definitely the year where I just, like, had to go full Terminator mode and, and just get everything done. And it really was the most incredible experience and kind of set everything up uh, moving forward after that. Awesome, man. So you just went on a tirade. I have a bunch of questions, <laughs> and everyone is rooting for you. I know that all of our listeners are like, come on, this has to turn out awesome. So... One thing I want to know, I know you're still paying down this student line of credit. That's probably why you're doing the waiter and TA job and all that stuff. Once you got out of that one-year master's program, did the outlook for you drastically improve? Because actually three weeks ago on episode 47, we had Chad who came on. He got his master's degree. He gets back in the workforce and he's making one more dollar per hour than he was <laughs> pre-master's degree. So Ben, I'm really hoping this was not the case for you. I just want to hear what happened right after you got that master's. Yeah, so it actually started before. So about four to five months before I graduated, I started uh, putting out five resumes a day to different places. And eventually, I actually got ended up getting hired at uh, the company I'm at still today. I work in public policy. And I got that job. I started a month before I uh, graduated from my master's. So I had kind of done my first defense of my thesis. And then I started the job and then uh, they gave me half a day off about a month into the job to go defend my final thesis. So I'd actually started working my career job even before I had finished my master's degree. And things did turn around. I had got a substantial increase in income at that point compared to what I was making before doing my master's. Absolutely. And then from there, I've had you know a few promotions and that income has been increasing significantly since 2013. And what was that increase you saw just from the master's, like starting that job with the master's degree? So actually starting that job, the salary was not too different from what I was making before. But also adding on to that, had access to a defined benefit pension, full insurance and all that stuff. But about three months in, I got a 10% raise after my probationary period had ended. And then my big raise came about 2015 when I was promoted from a policy analyst to a senior policy analyst with came with about a 35% pay bump. Awesome. Well, first of all, thank you for the transparency because it definitely helps the listeners just kind of understand like maybe someone who's listening to this is debating getting their master's and hearing someone who actually has gone through it, it might help them with that decision. But Ben, I got to imagine you're now making more than double what you were in 2013 I'm guessing you're a baller now. You're driving a Lambo. You know, you upgraded the house. Has your spending changed drastically since then? So my spending, it did not change for a really long time. Actually, when I first got my uh, job out of my master's, it probably stayed the same or even went down if that's possible. So <laughs> it was kind of like when I first when I started getting consistent money in my pocket, it really felt like, wow, this matters now. And what I do with this really matters. You know, while I was doing my master's work in the waiting job, I was working at the drone company. It was just kind of like, you know, fingernails holding on to the ledge there. But once kind of had a consistent income coming in, I was really concentrating on eliminating that debt. So I actually downgraded my living accommodations after I got my master's and moved into with two of my buddies that I did my master's with. They were still around in town. 
and we rented the worst apartment above the health food store. <laughs> my room was probably, oh my gosh, it's, it, it was closer to a closet than a room. And <laughs> we would put a, a tennis ball at the front door and it would roll all the way down to the uh, end of the apartment. <laughs> I was paying about $350 a, rent, uh, a month in rent though, so I was happy there. And that's the big thing. I've written about this before is like the biggest thing I did at that point was not increase my lifestyle. Still kept on the student life, cooking rice and buying the cheapest beer possible and uh, not going on vacation, not getting a car, you know, anything I could do to, to save money. And I was just taking all that extra money and throwing against these the line of credit. And I kept doing that until about 2015 when I finally was able to pay off all of the uh, student line of credits. Woohoo. Yeah. <laughs> So as we go through the story, the one thing I kind of want to make sure we keep doing is just taking little peek backs into how your parents are doing as all this is progressing. So as you're starting to get your feet under you and have a good job, are they kind of learning from their previous mistakes? Are you still having to throw them lifesavers? Just what is life like for them? Yeah. And that's kind of when my experience kind of took off to another level was when we kind of were able to wean off the me having to send money back to help. That was probably around the same time in 2015. And that's when I met my, at the time, girlfriend, now wife. And at that point, when I started to kind of get into a serious relationship, I really just had to say, like, look, I can't keep sending money back and try to pay off these debts and move forward with, you know, my life. And so that was the kind of point, too, where we kind of had that heart to heart and they started to turn things around. And my mom actually now has a good job with the government and makes a good wage. And maybe I'm fast forwarding a bit, but they actually rent a house from us in our hometown now. And uh, they have a very stable, well, yeah, they have a pretty good landlord, I think, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> their, their situation is completely stable now, which is nice. Oh, man, that's awesome. So you're currently your parents' landlord. So I want to go. <laughs> <laughs> I told you I like Monopoly. Absolutely. <laughs> that's funny. So was that the first property you bought, the house that your parents were living in? And also, could you just talk about location as well? Sure. Yeah. So actually, no, it wasn't the first house. The, the first house I bought was with my wife right after I'd paid the student loans off. I had enough money basically to scrape together my half of the down payment. And I was super anxious to start accumulating assets at that point. So we did not try to time the market. So we live in Waterloo, Ontario. That's about an hour outside of Toronto. We bought our house in 2016. And in the 12 months after we bought it, houses in Kitchener-Waterloo, where we live, increased by 60% in the <laughs> year after we bought. So we did not try to time the market, but we got super lucky in how we kind of accidentally timed the market perfectly. One thing we haven't really discussed so far is, you just mentioned your half of the down payment is the other half. So your wife, is she on the same kind of mindset as you? What was her background like? Just could you give us a quick synopsis of her standing? So, yeah, we couldn't be more different at all in terms of how we look at money. And I write about this a lot. You know, I run it by her first, but I use her as, as kind of a, a topic in my writing about personal finance all the time. So she basically, if it were up to her, we would keep all of our money in like gold bars underneath our, <laughs> uh, our bed. When, when we met, she had all of her money in a checking account. She didn't even have a savings account. Anytime someone at the bank would try to talk to her about, hey, you know, open a savings account or investing, and she would shut them down immediately. She's very risk averse, whereas I was, you know, I need to start accumulating assets as soon as possible. I'm very comfortable using mortgages as leverage to do that. I was trying to find every way possible to just increase her net worth as, as quickly as possible. 
very comfortable with the risk that that comes with that, given the expected returns. And that's just, you know, from my economics background, I spent six years studying finance and economics and was ready to stop, you know, looking at this stuff and spreadsheets and textbooks and start applying it to my own life. But she was very much the opposite. And it's stuff that we've, we've definitely had to butt heads with over the years. And we've had a lot of really good conversations about money. And we both kind of found ourselves meeting in the middle. So we bought our house together and immediately we saw the values go up in the year after we bought it. And my immediate thing was, oh, how can we uh, re- can we maybe think about refinancing to leverage that invest in the stock market and, uh, you know, increase it. She almost had a panic attack when I <laughs> brought that up. We had a four hour discussion one night when I first brought that up. And I think that's a good thing, too. We, we talk about it all the time and, and we've come to kind of a happy medium on the issue. So we have our our house currently uh, where we live in and we've been lucky enough that, yeah, that we, we accidentally timed the market. And at the times we were able to lock in at a 2.49 percent mortgage. So it's just wow. So in terms of timing of mortgage rates and timing of the market, couldn't have been luckier in that regard. And then a year later, we still live much below our means. So we had a lot of extra cash. And that's when we decided to uh, buy a house back in my hometown. So I'm from Halifax, Nova Scotia, originally. And that's where my parents still live. So we bought a house back there. My parents rent from us now. That was different. So, you know, the market in Halifax, Nova Scotia is not increasing by 65% per year. But we were able to that time, uh, I think, get a, a much better deal. We actually kind of worked the deal that time and got a good price this was a semi-detached house, and I describe it, it was like basically a grandma house. Um, <laughs> like It had carpets from 25 years ago. It had, you know, old china, like glued to the wall and all of these, <laughs> like, you know, really, really like out of date finishings. But other than that, it was, it was a good house. But I don't think it was super attractive to a lot of first time home buyers that wanted like a, a turnkey house. And, and that's kind of who that house was for. So we were able to get that at pretty good price as well. I think we got it about 20% under what the comparables were going for at the time. And in the last couple of years, we've done pretty well on that. We obviously don't charge a a full market rent on on my parents, but just kind of enough to pay their way. But we've done well on that. And then since then, we've been investing heavily in our retirement accounts in uh, full index funds and I'm happy to report that. So my wife has come a long way on on her risk, and she's actually opened up her her first DIY account where she's managing her investments, which three years ago would have been unthinkable. That is awesome, awesome dude. <laughs> yeah. So it seems like you've created this cool income stream from your parents, but something you touched on earlier, and just because I'm a side hustle fiend, I love hearing of what people are doing to make money. What are some of the other things you're doing on the side? I didn't mention you're a writer, but then you mentioned this ambiguous side hustle. So could you just talk about that for a little bit? Yeah. So I've always wanted to find it, you know, how many, I've always had kind of an anxiety about income, right? You know, what would happen if my income went away, even though I have a very secure job and I get along great with everybody I work with, I still have that kind of irrational fear of, of losing income. So I love the idea of having multiple income streams. My first ever side hustle was I started, so I'm almost a huge into fitness. So I started like an online workout program, tried to run that up through YouTube. It made a little bit of money and did a little bit for a while, but that kind of fizzled out. And then I really tapped into my love of personal finance, or I would more call it an obsession with personal finance. I had all of these ideas and it's always bugging my wife, you know, 
always wanting to talk about all this stuff. So I actually finally decided, you know, let me just start writing about this and get it out of my head and onto, you know, the keyboard here to just kind of clear my head on it a little bit. So I started writing on uh, Medium, mostly because I didn't want to do a lot of tech work. I'm not a tech guy whatsoever. So I didn't really want the extra work of setting up my own blog and doing all that at the time. I just wanted to write about investing and writing about finance and personal finance. And the great thing about Medium was it's kind of like an all-in-one platform. So I could just write a blog article and get it out there that first day and didn't have to worry about setting a WordPress or anything like that. So I've been doing that for about two years. And I do some freelance writing as well, personal finance freelance writing. And I'm actually very close to finishing right now a personal finance online course that I'm going to be offering out to my readers and people soon. So that's kind of the next level of the uh, side hustle. And really, that's when I'm going to be looking at it more from a little side hustle into more of a side business at that point, because now I'll be rolling out with a, an actual digital product and something I'm super excited about. And, and hopefully that kind of takes things to the next level. So as you continue to go deeper and deeper into the, the side hustles and the side businesses, have you started to kind of you know, get the itch for it and build out a plan to say, okay, this is how many more years I'm going to give traditional employment and this is when I'm stepping away or? Yeah. So I'm definitely much more into FI than RE. So much more into the aspect of financial independence and uh, early retirement. I would love to get just get to that point where I am at full FI and kind of just reassess at that point because it's being on this side of it and kind of looking towards it. I think that I'll continue to work. But once I reach that point, you never know, maybe a light switch will flip off and say, you know, what am I doing and fully embrace the side hustle aspect. But right now, my plan is just try to hit FI as, as quickly as possible. I do plan to, to continue to work because I do like my job. It's a good job and great boss and great people I work with and a lot of flexibility. I get a lot of like opportunity to work remotely sometimes and work from home occasionally. So I am in certainly no itch. I'm not one of the uh, people who are in the financial independence community who are motivated by getting out of their job. I'm much more motivated by never having to worry about my income stream ever again. I know one of the things I was just curious about just from a more tactical thing was, I know you mentioned like getting into index funds and things like that, but being in Canada, like I know in the US, everybody talks about either VTI or VTSAX. Is it different? funds that you're having to invest in in Canada and like what are kind of those gold standards of index funds in Canada if they are different? Yeah. So it is a pain to be a Canadian investor. I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> you guys don't know how good you have it just by having that US currency. So the big thing that I learned quickly, and this is really what I think is a really good lesson between, you know, theoretical and real life finance and investing so I spent six years studying finance and economics and, and all of that. Academically, I understood it all, but I had ever never actually had any money to invest. So when I did start investing, I did make a, a kind of a big mistake out the gate, which was I was buying U.S. Vanguard index funds in U.S. dollars and forgetting that when I was doing that, I was getting charged a 2% currency conversion uh, <laughs> from Canadian to U.S. every time I bought. And if I were to, to sell anything, I would have got hit with that as well. So Vanguard and BlackRock both have Canadian branches, I suppose. So now I do invest in similar to your, uh, you know, to a Vanguard S&P 500 index fund, or they have an equivalent of all those index funds. We pay a higher basis points for those because we don't have the same amount of assets under management in the Canadian Vanguard compared to the U.S. Vanguard. 
So right now I'm investing in a BlackRock fund. I actually only invest in two funds. One is BlackRock Index Fund, which tracks the global stock market and kind of reweights it as you know different countries make up a bigger proportion of the index and a global bond fund. And both of those are hedged to Canadian dollars. So I don't have to worry as much about, you know, when oil goes in the tank, what's going to happen to my uh, investments. And I almost forgot you guys are absolutely screwed when it comes to travel rewards. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so you guys don't my... have any of the cards we got. I feel bad. <laughs> it's terrible. It's terrible. So one of the first podcasts I started listening to was the Choose FI podcast. And I was so psyched listening to their travel rewards podcast. And I was so excited to get into this. I was like, here we go. I, cause I, you know, who doesn't love traveling? I'm like, here we go. I said to my wife, we're going to do this. I made her listen to the podcast. And then I started looking around at the credit card rewards here. And I was like, this is, what is this? <laughs> I felt like I was sold a bill of goods. But the problem in Canada is we have four big banks that control about 90% of the market. So they all offer basically the same product because they don't need to be very creative. And actually, I think from the financial services in general, Canada is way behind U.S., especially when it comes to the friendliness to investors and consumers. So a vast majority of Canadian investments are still in high fee active mutual funds. And a lot of the money, the new money inflowing to funds is still going into uh, high fee active mutual funds. Because again, we have four big banks and three big insurance companies that push all of this product. And the vanguards of the world haven't really broken through the same way they have in the U.S. Sounds like we need to do a roadshow. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Come on up to Toronto. So Ben, one last thing I wanted to ask was if there are other listeners out there who have this kind of dynamic with their parents where they have kind of become the haves and their parents are still kind of the have nots and, you know, they feel for them and they've been trying to help them. But, you know, they're kind of getting to that point to where it's starting to kind of drag them down and hold them back from their goals. What advice do you have for somebody who is looking at their parents and they don't want to be cruel? They want to help them, but it's starting to kind of become too much. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think this was a lesson that I learned too late. And uh, if I learned it earlier, I certainly probably would have been a lot happier during some of my earlier years. But really, you just got to you got to find the point where you've hit your limit. And eventually, it might be, seem brutal. But there was a point too at one point where I basically had no relationship with my dad anymore. Things had gotten to a point where every time my phone rang, I knew it was him and I knew it was going to be money related. And I would just get like a tight, just my stomach would go into knots. And you can't let yourself kind of be taken advantage of. As tough as it might be, you have to find the point where you kind of say, this is my limit and really stick to it, no matter how tough that is. And, you know, to avoid hitting that limit, I think a lot of things is just communicate along the way. I know that was one thing that we really lacked early on was an honest communication about what the full situation looked like. And if you're going to end up lending money to anybody, whether it's family or whoever, first get a picture of what possibility does that person have to pay you back. So you really need to know what is their financial situation? Do they have money coming in? You got to look at it. If you're lending someone money, how would the bank look at it if they were lending money? Obviously, you're not going to you know, charge your family a, a substantial interest rate. But in terms of a just the general, like, what is the possibility or the odds that I'm going to get paid back? And you got to go in knowing that they don't have a lot of income. There's a possibility and they may not pay you back. So you got to look at it either as a loan if you think they can pay you back or as a gift if you think that they can't pay you back. But don't go and give somebody money and think about it as a loan when really it's, it's a gift. And it can get really tricky when, when you're working with family on that. And this is actually something I wrote a full article about that. But 
really is just treat it like you would treat someone, anybody asking for your money and be really open and communicate along the way and set your expectations, right? And, and try if possible. I know this is hard to do with family, but try to set up like a, at least an outline of a of repayment schedule. Don't just say, here's $5,000 and pay it back when you can. Maybe try to put something in, okay, in three months, we're going to start a payment schedule of $200 a month for X number of months. Just something so that you have something that you can refer back to and say, well, we discussed that you were going to start paying me back $200 a month starting in March and it's April and, uh, you know, I haven't seen anything yet. Otherwise, you know, what happened with me was here's $5,000, pay it back when you can and it never comes back and then resentment begins to, to kind of creep in there. So communication and if you can, you know, put something down on, on paper that kind of maps out how this is going to work in terms of repayment. Awesome. Well, Ben, thanks so much for coming on the show and giving us some time. And you've definitely got a, a ton of backstory for everybody to dig into. And so if somebody wanted to read more into that or maybe get in contact with you, where's the best place for them to do that? Yeah. So I write on my publication, Making a Millionaire on Medium. So that's medium.com slash making a millionaire. And I also do a lot of freelance writing on a new personal finance platform called Wealth Tender. So that's wealthtender.com. Sweet, man. And one question we like to ask all of our guests is, what is your number one tip for those on the path to financial independence? Number one tip, I would say be obsessed with your goal. It, reaching financial independence and really just getting your finances together in general is really hard. And it takes a really long time and you have to be in it for the long haul. And there's going to be a lot of really difficult bumps along that road. So really, the only way to guarantee they're going to get there is just to be completely obsessed with your goal and, you know, keeping that top of mind every day and, and not getting discouraged when things kind of life throws you a major curveball. Really, it's difficult, but try to think of things in the long term and, and, and try to remove that kind of short term mindset and kind of think in the long term of, you know, yeah, things may be difficult right now, but I'm looking five or 10 years out and kind of working towards that goal. Already been now. Here's the uh, the fun part of the show. It is the the part that you're not ready for. I'm not ready for. Cody's certainly not ready for. It's the wild card question. Even though you're not ready, are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to leave this pretty broad for you. So it could be a sport, a weird dish, whatever. What is something that Canadians do that Americans would look at and just be like, man, that's weird. We win the NBA championship. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, Drake. Drake coming from the ceiling. Yeah, exactly. Oh, man, that was quick. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I used oh. to stand up comedy, too, so I'm, I try to be quick on my feet. All right, Ben. Well, just can't thank you enough for coming on and sharing your story today. I'm sure it's going to resonate with a ton of listeners who have had trouble communicating with family, who have had trouble with student debt, who have had trouble with just anything in their financial life. So really appreciate you being transparent and coming on the show today, man. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. A great time, and thank you for having me. Man, Cody, just another great episode. This time, we got a little international flavor with a Canadian. What do you think about it? Yeah, man, I really love this episode because Ben came from a family where he thought he was upper middle class. He thought his parents were rocking it, and they probably were up until the 2008 real estate crisis hit. And then everything just hit the fan. His family had to claim bankruptcy. It was just absolutely crazy. And he, this was a house where his parents were definitely successful from an income standpoint, but they never talked about managing money. They never talked about savings. It was almost taboo for him to talk about money in the house. Yeah, I think we've all heard these stories about, like, yeah, those people, they look like they have money, but they really don't. Like, as soon as something bad happens, they, they can't make ends meet. And it it's kind of hard to wrap your head around, but this was really cool to get an inside view, like somebody who's actually living it and seeing it firsthand. 
And like you said, I mean, it's not like he was doing bad. I mean, he couldn't even get like the normal college loans and had to take out these other higher interest loans that he actually had a lot of trouble paying back because they required him to start paying them back right away, which got him into credit trouble. It was just kind of interesting to see how those decisions his parents made started trickling down to him. And the craziest thing was he had that student loan line of credit thing. And so he had to work like three jobs in college just to pay that back because it wasn't like in America where a lot of loans are subsidized and you have to pay like once you get your first job or once you're out of school. He was paying this thing down while he was in college. And I know he mentioned he worked for like a drone company. He was doing all sorts of different things. So, I mean, got to give it to Ben. I was rooting for him that whole entire time. And I know at one point in the story when he talked about getting his master's, if you go back and listen to episode 47, when Chad got his master's, it didn't really help him out too much. And I'm like, please have a different story, Ben. And he did. And he got a huge, huge pay bump and just a lot of benefits and so many great things happened after he got that master's degree. Yeah, definitely turned out well for him. But again, for, you know, some people who may be even a little younger, they may not remember like during this time when you graduated college, you'd think, hey, just graduated college. I'm ready to rock and roll. But the job market was just terrible. So that was really his only option was to go back to school and to just to put himself in a different tier and hope that the job market rebounded. And luckily it did. Now, that was kind of a rough situation where You know, he kind of went to get his master's, not necessarily because he was like in love with it, but it was more out of necessity. He did take advantage of all those opportunities. And, you know, he started trying to invest right away. And when he meets his wife, you know, he gets her on board as well. And now they're really doing well. In fact, they're doing so well that Ben's parents are actually renting from them in their second real estate property. So this guy went from a family who went bankrupt. They lost their first home. Now he has two houses. He's living in one of the houses. And then he bought this second house as a quote unquote investment property where his parents are actually renting from him. So not only has Ben been a lifeline for his parents, but he has done incredibly well for himself, got his wife on board, and it seems like he's just crushing it. Yeah, Ben has definitely been very successful and it didn't just stop at like, you know, getting the masters, getting a good job, getting into real estate, investing, spreading that across his family and, you know, in his own household. He's also spreading a ton of financial information across the internet through his publication on Medium. And he's making, you know, thousands of dollars on top of his day job through just writing on the internet, which is going to really compound and just fast track his way to retirement. And it was so crazy how... Whoa. What is it, Cody? It's the call to action, man. And so this week's call to action goes out to if you have anyone in your life, whether it's a parent, whether it's a friend, whether it's some other family member, and they're struggling with money, you know, they just don't know the ropes, the basics of saving that a lot of people listening to the Fi Show probably do know, sit down and have a real conversation with them. Tell them where they're headed, what they can do to kind of stop themselves on this path and do something like Ben did. Because Ben's relationship with his parents was honestly deteriorating because every time they'd give him a call, they were asking for money and he was just so fed up with it. Until he had that heart-to-heart conversation, he told them exactly how he feels and he started to get them on the right path. Awesome call to action, Cody. I mean, those relationships are so important, especially when you're talking about retiring early. You're going to have all that free time on your hands and you're definitely going to want to have some people to spend it with. And if you want to spend a little more time getting to know Ben's story, you can go look for the show notes and get all the links to, you know, his medium writing and all the things that Ben's getting into over at thefyshow.com slash Ben. And then if you want to join a Facebook group that's just all about everything money that's all inclusive that's welcome for everyone whatever discussion you want to have you can come do that by joining our facebook group at the slash community and as always we appreciate those five-star reviews and those ratings wherever you listen to your podcast it helps us get great guests like ben thanks for listening 
see you on next week's episode of The Fi Show. Bye.